Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Now, one reason that people don't pray much is that they, some people don't pray much, is that they don't really understand that they are in a spiritual battle right now. And they don't understand that the battle will intensify as the return of Jesus draws near. The signs Jesus gave us in Matthew 24 of his return aren't just signs. Oh no, I, I memorized most of chapter 24 and I've gone through it many, many times. And perhaps you will want to memorize that one. It's a, I can't think of a chapter that would be more appropriate at this time in the history of, of the world. But uh, Jesus not only tells us about signs of his return, the signs are actually signs of an intensification of spiritual warfare that leads up to his return. That is what those signs are. And if you, if you now go back and reread that with what, what I just said in mind, you'll see that it's true. And in this passage, Matthew 24, Jesus warned four times that deception would increase significantly, so much so that it would even deceive the elect. So it's very, very important as we think of it. Now, I'd like to talk about these signs, but I don't have the time to do that today. We're talking about warfare and prayer. So how did spiritual warfare begin in the first place? Well, God created the world, and he saw that it was very good, according to Genesis 1. And however, when Satan and, um, and the other angels rebelled, they were cast out from God's presence. And with malicious spite... Uh, they, uh, they set out to spoil God's good work, taking square aim at the pinnacle of his creation, which was humanity. In the garden, Satan's seductive temptation resulted in the fall. And God announced that the fall would set off an ensuing struggle, hence spiritual warfare, between the seed of the serpent, which are people opposed to God, and the seed of the woman, which are the people of faith until a future singular seed, who we now know is Jesus Christ, would come to finally defeat the serpent and his offspring. Now, we see the beginning of those two lines in the book of Genesis. Uh, Eve's firstborn, Cain, was, just, uh, was the first in a long line of the serpent seed, those opposed to God. And it's traced through the next number of uh, chapters, right, right to, right to uh, the time of Noah, uh, those opposed to God, who went on to, and, and Cain went on to murder his younger brother Abel. Eve's third son, Seth, a righteous man, and uh, became the head of a line of the seed of the woman, who were the people of faith. And so you see these two lines being traced throughout. And there's this spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle that is taking place right from the beginning of the history of mankind and continuing right up till now. Now, let's move on. Satan and his seed have been targeting God's seed ever since. And we'll look at a few examples uh, of this, uh, six examples, and just show you how directly it states that Satan is actually behind it or the devil is behind it. For example, David, uh, and with it, we'll, we'll look at a, a principle right away while we're at it, uh, some, something we learn from this spiritual warfare. And in the life of David, 
uh, Satan incited him to take a census. That's a very fascinating story. And it says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. You want to go back and read it because at another point it says that God incited David to do it. And, uh, and, and I'm not going to give you the answer to that riddle here, although it's found you'll see something similar in the book of Job. That'll give you a, a hint. But 70,000 innocent people lost their lives because of it. And there's a lesson we learned from this. When we fall or when we fail, when we succumb to the enemy's temptations, attacks on us, it affects innocent members of our families, our churches, our businesses, those, in our, those within our sphere of influence. Number two, example two, Ananias and Sapphira. They, they were members of a New Testament church. They sold property, gave the proceeds to the church, but the Spirit revealed to Peter that they had secretly held back some of the proceeds for themselves. Notice that Peter says that the deception came from Satan himself. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Ananias, Peter's saying this to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? You see the beginning of, uh, of Genesis there and the whole story of, the, of the, the fall is not an allegory. That's why you have the genealogical records indicating the, the lineages of these two lines. And then you see that throughout the New Testament, uh, Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament church kept referring to this, this, uh, this being called the devil or Satan who is very much alive today. And he says, you've lied, uh, Satan has filled your, your uh, heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money. Uh, uh, you receive for the land and both came under divine discipline and and died on the spot here's the third example Judas one of those that Jesus had actually prayed about he 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 chose Judas after a night of prayer he chose his 12 one of them was Judas the father chose Judas and in Luke chapter 22, it says, Then Satan entered Judas. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And here's a principle, one little principle we learned from this, or a lesson we learned from it, that through greed, Judas opened the door to Satan's control in his life. And we can do the same thing, even as believers. And that's why uh, Paul even says that in Ephesians. He said, uh, said we've got to be careful about anger because it'll give a foothold for Satan in our lives. Any sin will give, uh, that, that we don't repent of, hence the, the set free, and um, will be an opening for Satan to have influence in our lives. Here's example number four. And that's the Apostle Paul himself. The Apostle John attributed persecution um, uh, of believers to, to the devil. I'm, and, and I said Paul, but I really mean John. Sorry, I just see that in my notes now. The apostle John attributed persecution of believers to the devil. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and, will, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Open doors in its report this month. 
says that 13 Christians are martyred every day. Every day, 12 churches are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjust, unjustly imprisoned, and another five are abducted, beaten, and raped. 309 million believers live in, uh, in countries where there's high levels or extreme levels of persecution. And Satan is behind it. He works through individuals. And he works through uh, persecution in, in uh, lower levels. Uh, you might be uh, overlooked for a promotion, for example, because you're a believer, assuming that you're doing a good job and uh, that it's not your character that's causing it. Uh, persecution behind it is Satan working. Here's another example, the church at Thessalonica. Paul established a church in Thessalonica in AD 49 when the unbelieving Jews uh, uh, incited opposition, Paul fled to Berea. And um, not, to con not content to leave him alone there, these Thessalonian antagonists sent troublemakers to oppose Paul in Berea, so he left for Athens. While there, Paul sent a letter to the newly established church in Thessalonica to determine their welfare and build them up. And the letter reveals Paul's belief that Satan was behind the trouble. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18 says, For we, wa uh, we wanted uh, to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Satan can stop ministries. Isn't that something? He's constantly at work. So we're, we're picking up principles we're seeing some of the things, oh, there's so much that we could talk about, but I'm just giving you some evidences of this, this history of spiritual warfare that began at the beginning of time, or at uh, the beginning of mankind, and continues on to this day. And then there's the parable of the soils themselves. And I think this is fascinating because here's what I want to say to you, church. Here's what I want to say to every believer that's watching here today. You, You'd think you were safe at church from Satan's attacks. You'd think so. But according to the scriptures, not so. My, my point in, in all this, I'm going I'm to show you, and I, I want you to hang on for a moment. In the parable of soils, Jesus told that the seed was sown on four kinds of soils. The seed was sown on the path where the birds came and ate it up. That's the one we're going to go back to in a moment. Among the rocks, in thorny ground, and finally in good soil. See Jesus' meaning of the seed sown along the path where the birds came and ate the seed. In Luke chapter 8, he gives us the meaning. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Sounds like church, doesn't it? And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe. Just because you're in church doesn't mean that you're, a f that you're free from the attack of the enemy. He attacks, think about this, we, we always think that he's attacking uh, unbelievers. The spiritual warfare that, start at the begin, uh, that, start, that began at the beginning of time, according to Genesis 3.15, was between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, and they have been warring against 
each other. He's after you and I and our children and our grandchildren and all those within the sphere of our influence. So, let's look at what prayer is intended to accomplish against Satan. And oh my, we need to spend hours right now, but I know you won't listen for hours. So I'm just going to give you a cursory, cursory glance. We're going to look at a few principles taken from some examples, three examples. In Paul's classic passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, you know about the armor and so on and so forth, as we'll see shortly, we'll, we'll get to it in just a moment, one of the spiritual weapons he exhorts us to use is prayer. So he tells us to put on Uh, on armor, but then he moves on to prayer. We'll look at three examples for this and draw out some principles to inform our praying in times of spiritual warfare, which is all the time. You are in a spiritual battle right now, whether you think you are or not. And if you are asleep, spiritually asleep, you have already succumbed to the battle. Here's the first example. Job was attacked by Satan. One day the angels presented themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with him. God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Is there, there is no man like him. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan retorted, it's because you've placed a hedge around him and blessed him, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to his face. Very well. The Lord said, everything he has is in your hands. Think about this. Satan and the Lord are having a discussion about a righteous individual, one of God's children. And he says, and then God said, but you can't touch the man. Satan received uh, uh, greater latitude. Satan left the presence of the Lord to attack Job. He aroused the Sabians to attack Job's servants, carry off the oxen and and donkeys. Next, he called down fire from heaven, destroying the sheep, together with the servants, caring for them. He followed this up by provoking three Chaldean raiding parties to sweep in and take the camels, again killing the servants. And then he caused a great wind to collapse the house in which Job's children were feasting, killing all seven of them. When Job responded with worship, Satan challenged God, saying that if Job was robbed of his health, then he would surely curse God to his face. So, God relented, granting Satan permission to attack Job directly, but prohibiting him from taking Job's life. Job 2, 7 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job. And he afflicted him with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And at some point, God stepped in and ended this period of intense trial and testing caused directly by Satan himself. Among other things, Satan's intent surely included the following. First of all, to cause Job to fall away from his faith. And by the way, that's one of the things he's trying to do with believers. And it works. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, I was referring to Matthew 24, not only would would deception come that would affect, deceive even the elect, Jesus actually said, 
at that time, many will fall away from the faith. Think about that. That's Matthew 24. Which is why Satan said he will curse you to your face. And the second thing that Satan was trying to do uh, was to discredit God. God was showcasing a man, a righteous, blameless kind of man. I don't mean sinless, but God calls them righteous and blameless. Showcasing a man who chose to love him no matter what. Satan wanted to show that Job didn't really love God, but only the gifts he received from God. And to prove Satan wrong and to teach everyone that God has redemptive purposes even in suffering, and he does, but that would be another week uh, or another month or two uh, to talk about, God granted permission to Satan. Now, there's five principles we learned from this one, uh, this one account. Um, Here's principle number one. And these principles inform our praying. God sometimes permits the devil to attack us. Sometimes he does. Number two, God has good reasons for allowing such attacks, whether we know what the reason is or not. Number three, God doesn't always tell us the purpose for our testing. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he tells us later on. Uh, but by the way, I was talking about Peter before, uh, uh, last week. Sometimes he tells us before the fact. Number four, God sets boundaries for what the devil can do to us. And number five, God sets time parameters for how long Satan can attack us. This informs our praying for ourselves and for others. All right, let's move on to example number two. At the Last Supper, Jesus warned Peter of Satan's desire to attack him. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And then Jesus says this, but I have prayed for you, Simon. Is that something? Jesus is praying for Simon, and he's praying for us. He's a great intercessor. He's interceding for us even right now. Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. First, I want you to notice that Satan had already asked permission to attack Peter, much like in the Job story. And now we see it again in the New Testament context. Second, Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Satan was aiming at the faith of a future church leader. He knew what he was doing. He knew if he could get him, he could get many others. First, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so they don't understand the gospel, and then once they're saved, Satan changes his tactics determined to cause them to all fall away from the faith. So first he tries to prevent them from moving towards faith, and then after they've accepted Christ, then he tries to tear them away from the faith. He is relentless in his battle and in his warring with us. Relentless. Third, did you take note that Jesus didn't rebuke 
the devil in this case. That's a simplistic solution. And now, I'm, I'm all for rebuking the devil. There are places for that. And we see uh, evidence of Jesus doing that. Remember, we talked about the story last week about where Jesus uh, or Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's in Matthew 16. Just a little bit later, just a little bit later, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter takes him aside and it says that he rebuked Jesus. Jesus responded by rebuking Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, because Jesus understood that the thoughts behind, that the thoughts in Peter's mind were the, mind, were the thoughts of Satan himself. And he rebuked him. And so in that case, Satan uh, um, uh, was rebuked. But in this case, Jesus does not rebuke the devil. Notice that. So this simplistic solution that we can just, whenever we're under attack, the only thing we have to do is just rebuke the devil and that solves it and he goes away, actually isn't biblical. There are times when that, when that is a solution. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 where he says, pick up the sword of the spirit, which is a rhema word there. That's the, the, the sword of the spirit, which is a word from God. A word, and it's not logos, it's uh, rhema, a spoken word. If he, if he gives us that, we can rebuke him. But sometimes, and that doesn't mean you can't try rebuking. I mean, you can try rebuking if it doesn't work. You may want to go back to, to uh, Christ and listen by the Spirit and say, why is that not working? And the Holy Spirit may reveal to you why. If he doesn't, then you're in the same situation that Job was in, where you're just going to have to be patient and wait it out. But anyway, uh, why was Satan given permission to sift attack Peter? Probably to break Peter's arrogance and self-sufficiency. And we'll see that in the next example of Paul uh, that that we look at uh, very shortly. Uh, There we know for certain that that was the issue because God said that, or uh, Christ said that. Fourth, Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail and that after he had repented or turned back, that's what repentance, by the way, is. We talked a little bit about repentance last week. He would be restored to ministry. Now, here are five more principles that we, that we draw from this particular account that informs our praying. And you may want to take all these principles down and just write them down. And when you're praying, just work your way through that. I, uh, we, we only have time to uh, do a cursory glance of these principles here. The sixth principle here is Satan's goal is to cause us to fall away from the faith when he's attacking believers. Number seven, and by the way, when he gets us to fall away from the faith, the whole idea is that he's going to cause a lot of others to fall away from the faith with us. So our sphere of influence goes down. I always say to people, I said this, uh, I say this to pastors all the time, I cannot, I must not ever quit because I've got a nail in the wall and people are hanging on my nail just like they're hanging on yours. And if my nail comes out, many others are going to fall as well. And if your nail comes out, there's others that are going to fall as well. Seventh, 
principle, prayer doesn't always prevent Satan from attacking us. Eight, but you'll like this, but prayer stops Satan's ultimate goal, which is to rob a believer of their faith, to stop you. So it won't, prayer won't necessarily stop you from being attacked. Prayer will, st- uh, will stop Satan's ultimate goal, which is to stop you or get you removed from the faith, to walk away from the faith so that he can affect many others. And remember, Peter was a future church leader that was going to have great influence in the New Testament church. Ninth, sometimes God informs us of the purpose for an attack uh, beforehand, as he did in the case of Peter. Sometimes, remember, because Jesus said, Peter, this is what's going to happen. Sometimes he does it during the, uh, the attack, which is what we're going to see in the story of Paul coming up, but I, I had to put them together here. Um, and sometimes we find out after the test, as in the case of Job. Now, I don't, um, I don't know if Job found out during his lifetime or if he just knows it now, but that's afterward no matter which. And tenth, here's the tenth principle that informs our praying in spiritual warfare, which is constantly going on around us and in our lives. In an attack, sometimes you rebuke the devil. In other cases, you pray for God's purposes to be accomplished in, in, in your life. So you rebuke him, and if that doesn't take care of it, then you go back to the Lord and you say, Lord, that's not working. Do you have other purposes? And, uh, and you, f- you find out uh, what he says. Well, here's the third example from which we're going to draw another two principles that inform our praying in the middle of spiritual warfare. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 7 and 9, Paul says, um, to keep me from being conceited because of his surpassing uh, surpassingly great revelations there was given me a thorn in my flesh a messenger from who satan there it is again notice all these examples satan is at work here to torment me three times i pleaded with the lord to take it away from me but he said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Satan attempted to block Paul from continuing his kingdom-advancing work by delivering a messenger to torment him. And um, it it must have been something. When Satan sends a messenger, it's not going to be a piece of cake. It's not going to be a happy time. And so Paul, take a look at this. The Apostle Paul pleads three times. This is the Apostle Paul who can cast out demons and can heal people. And he's doing it regularly and often. And yet, in this particular case, something is tormenting. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was from Satan. And Satan evidently had permission from the Lord because Paul begs God to remove it. It was that severe. 
Instead, God used it to keep Paul, this is, this is Paul's answer here, from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations given to him. Think about this. The Apostle Paul received all these incredible revelations and writes them down as he's answering the church's questions and trying to solve their problems. And the Lord is showing him some incredible revelations about uh, and, and giving new meaning to the uh, to sacrifice and the cross and so on and so forth. And these were, these were amazing. Can you imagine how conceited a human leader would be, uh, be tempted to become? And so Jesus says, you know what, Paul? I am giving you the honor, the unique honor and privilege of these surpassingly great revelations and to keep you from becoming conceited and proud and arrogant, I'm going to have to allow a messenger from Satan or a thorn in your flesh to keep you dependent on me so that you will never forget that actually you're just a human being and that you need me as much as anyone else does. And by the way, that's a, it was a gift. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more. And what does he say? What's the next word? Gladly about this. He says all the more gladly about it. Why? Because, you see, when we can be disqualified from the prize, as we're going to see in a passage coming up very, very quickly, we can do it with wrong motives. We can do ministry in the wrong way. We can serve the Lord but in a wrong way. And then all our, uh, you know, is it, is it, is it costly stones, good, gold, silver, wood, hay, or stubble? It'll be tested by fire. He says our works will be tested by fire. Those that are survive will be rewarded for. Those that aren't will be burnt up. And he tells us just a few verses later, it's the motives behind what we're doing that's going to be tested. And so, God says, Paul, I, I don't want your eternal reward to be in jeopardy. And for that reason, because God is more concerned about the line of our eternity than the dot of the present, amen? More interested in the line of our eternity than the dot of the present. And because he was interested in Paul's line of eternity, God says, I'm going to allow this this suffering at this time. And Paul, Paul went through a tremendous amount of suffering. In fact, at one place in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that we despaired even of life itself. But you know what he says when you get to chapter 4? He says that he considered his suffering to be light and momentary troubles. Why? Because he, he was looking at his life in light of eternity, the line of eternity, and not in the dot of the present. And so that's how God works. It is loving. It was loving and it is loving for God to sometimes allow these kinds of things in our life. And he said, instead of taking it away, I'll give you my grace instead. I'm going to give you the desire and ability to do it. And you can see it in Paul's response. And so here are some additional principles that inform our warring and pray, prayer. Because you, you see, um, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> Eleventh, 
we should pray to God for relief from demonic attack. It's always right to ask for relief. <laughs> Anytime. If you're sick, you should pray for healing. If, uh, if you're under attack, you should pray for that. Whatever you have needs, you should go to the Lord in prayer. But know this, sometimes he says no. And then he says, but his grace is sufficient to withstand the devil's torment and may be accessed through prayer. It may be accessed through prayer. That's the 12th principle. So from these 12 principles, we can see how vital it is to be able to hear God's voice so that we can align our prayers and our actions with his purposes. Amen? Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next section here. Much prayer is required to survive and thrive in spiritual warfare. First, and there's two parts to this that I want to uh, talk about. Much prayer is needed to withstand Satan's withering attacks. That's, that's where we get our grace. Did you know that the armor that we're supposed to be putting on, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, verse 10. Uh, for, uh, and then he says, uh, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. And so, and then he says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and having done everything to stand. And then he tells us to put on the armor. Guess what that armor is? That armor is putting on Christ, is, is essentially, it's a, it's, they're, they're metaphors. You know, the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the feet uh, fitted with readiness comes from the gospel of peace and the, and the helmet of salvation and so on. Those are metaphors. They're pictures of spiritual realities, but those spiritual realities are specifics of God's grace. They describe what he means by grace. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what it does. So, uh, for example, feet fitted uh, with readiness that comes from, from the gospel of peace. He's talking about peace. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 4, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything make your, uh, by prayer and thanksgiving, uh, or prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the what? Peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Guard your hearts and minds from what? From the withering attacks. The God, the Satan is trying to make you anxious. And he's trying, if you become anxious and worried and there's, and there's turmoil in your life and you don't have peace in the middle of his attacks, that's how he gets you to stop. So one aspect of the grace of God, which is sufficient for you that the apostle Paul got, he says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, is peace. It's just one of the aspects of this thing called grace. Here's another one, hope. Take the helmet of salvation, which is hope. We find in another piece where Paul talks about uh, the helmet of salvation and calls it hope. If you take hope away from an individual, they won't get out of bed. Take hope out and you're going to curl up underneath your covers and never get out again. You and I need hope. 
and hope is shed abroad by the Holy Spirit who, is, who has been given to us according to Romans chapter 15, verse 13. That is grace. How do you get it? In prayer. In prayer. You cannot withstand Satan's withering attacks if you don't spend much time in prayer. I cannot tell you how many times it, it pitch black outside. I never get up when it's light. And it's pitch black outside, and I wake up, and I groan, and I go, oh, no, not another day. Do you ever do that? Especially when you're in the middle of an attack, and then uh, and, uh, finally you, you get up, and, 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 and you're just, you know, n- nothing's good. And I go to prayer, and sometimes I'm memorizing the Word, and I'm mixing it with prayer, and I pray, and I hear God's voice, and I'm mixing it with, and I'm pacing, and I'm walking, and it's pitch black, in, in a room where I'm doing this. And you know what? All at once I find myself consciously saying to myself, I'm doing well. All is well with my soul. Do you see what I'm saying? You need much prayer just to withstand the withering attacks of the enemy who wants to stop you in your tracks. Yeah. I have no idea where I am in this message. (laughs) But I am excited. Anyway, um, I was going to talk a little bit about the mind (laughs) because he he tells us to put on the belt of truth. He talks a lot about uh, the belt of truth. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How, how does Satan attack us? He attacks us in several ways. He attacks our mind. He attacks our emotions. And he ta- attacks our will. And sometimes he attacks our bodies, as we saw with, uh, with the Apostle Paul. And as we saw with Job. The armor... You can see it even in the armor you're putting on, the belt of truth. It's referring to, it's it's talking about the assaults, the deceit that comes against believers in the mind. Or if you, we talked about peace, we talked about hope and stuff. And so he says, put on the helmet of salvation, put on, uh, you know, fit, uh, feet, um, you know, get them ready (laughs) with with, uh, peace. And that's, that's, talking about the, that's talking about the emotions. How about the shield of faith? He's talking about the will. Now, I've, I've spoken on these things in, in series before, so I'm just, I'm just touching on it, but I want to hit something here. You can't withstand the enemy who's constantly going after you and your family and those that in your sphere of influence if you, if you don't spend much time in prayer clothed with his grace, the armor. And it's not just praying it on, you know, in 30 seconds or more, you know. Dear God, I now put on the belt of truth. Dear God, I now, no, 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 no. You spend time in prayer, and then these pieces start to come onto you as you pray about them and hear from God about them, and as he, by his spirit, begins to fill you with those aspects of his grace. All right. He often tempts you with thoughts in your mind, which is what happened to Peter when he rebuked Jesus concerning the cross. And by the way, you think that because you're going to church, you're safe from an attack in the mind because you listen to a preacher? Far from it. Peter listened to the greatest preacher that ever lived. 
And when that preacher told him the truth, Satan lied and deceived him. You're not safe in church from the attack of the enemy. Which is why you must spend much time in the Word yourself and in meditation. Why meditation? Because meditation is really hearing what the Spirit is saying about what he wrote. And you must spend much time in prayer. Satan recognized, or Jesus recognized Satan's thoughts behind it, which is why he said that. Uh, get behind me. If Satan can speak to you by placing thoughts into your mind, don't you think you need to be able to hear God's Spirit speak to you to counter his thoughts? If Satan is doing that to you and me, then you and I better, if we can hear him, we better be able to hear the Spirit's voice. Because otherwise, we, there's, we don't stand a chance. That is precisely what meditation is all about. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to speak about what he said so that we, you, you see, because this is how Satan does it. He takes a large measure of truth. No, 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 he, you say. He takes a whole bunch of lies. That's why I know, I know it when he says it. No, that's not how he works. He takes a whole big measure of truth. In fact, he will quote scripture to you. As he did with Jesus. At his, the second of the three temptations of Jesus, he quoted Psalm 91 verses 1 to 2 to Jesus. He, he will use scripture. You say, well, I, I read my Bible sometimes. That's great. But I'm telling you, sometimes knowing a little bit of the Bible is, is, is almost more dangerous than not knowing it. Because you think you know it. You think you're self-sufficient. And he takes that truth, and then he takes just two or three drops of poisonous deceit and drops it in the, in, in the drink. And you drink it, and you think you're drinking truth, and you're not which is why you must spend much time in the Word and you must spend much time in prayer. And that combined together, you get meditation. Very important. The armor is primarily put on as you are praying. Remember I said, it's not you just go and pray those pieces on. Dear God, I'm now, please put on the belt of truth. Dear God, now please put put on my helmet. No, 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 no. You're doing it. It's, they're coming on as you are in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 to 18 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Look at this, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's lots of prayer. By the way, that's a participle praying at all times. Some of our translations, the NIV that I memorize, doesn't have that participle there. It has it as a verb. But the participle tells us two things. It tells us how you're putting on the armor. That's the first thing, uh, which protects the mind, the emotions, and the will. And the present tense of the participle tells you that you have to be continually praying. And then as you pray, God helps you and he starts putting these things on and you are filled with the Spirit and stuff. See, sometimes these truths are said in different ways in the New Testament, but they're the same truths. 
Okay, second, much prayer is needed to help others. Not only do we need to pray much in order to withstand the enemy's relentless attacks, we also need to pray much to help others. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus said this. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house? He's talking about robbing him of souls. That's what the enemy is after. He... he has us in captivity. Paul talks about that. The Apostle Paul, I've preached on that. And, but if you're going to rob people and take him out of his grasp and clutches, you have to tie him up first. You do that through prayer. God gives you strategies. He shows you how to do it. Similarly, Paul tells us we are to be alert for others too. He says in Ephesians 6, 18, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making, here's the participle again, how do you, how are you alert with all perseverance? How do you become alert for others? By making supplication for all the saints. In other words, what God is saying to us as believers, he's saying, you have a responsibility to be on alert for others. Your marriage partner, your children, your grandchildren, those in the sphere of your influence, you have a responsibility to be alert because the enemy is attacking. How do you do it? By making supplication for them, for all the saints. And Paul tells us that by using that uh, participle. We're to do it continually. And when you consider that we need to be much in the word and prayer to withstand the enemy's relentless attacks, when you consider that it, it will take much prayer to rescue others being attacked by the enemy, we come to understand why Paul exhorted, pray without ceasing. Amen? Pray without ceasing. Okay. Now I have to answer a quick question. And that's this question about legalism. Ray, somebody objects and says, Ray, isn't this just legalism? You're just continually pushing us to do more, pray more, be in the word more. You're just a legalist, Ray. Now, legalism is a conviction. Let me tell you what it is. There is no word like that in, in Scripture, not in the Old Testament, not in the Hebrew, not in the Greek. However, the concept is there. Here's what legalism really is. It's a conviction that we get God to be for us or he becomes our friend when we measure up by keeping the law or rules and regulations. That's what legalism essentially is. Of course that's wrong. God is for us because we're in Christ, not because we have kept all kinds of rules and regulations. Amen. I agree with that. In fact, I'll quote a passage for you. There's many. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. But another danger is often more subtle than the suffocating trap of legalism. And do you know what it is? It's one that neglects spiritual effort out of fear of legalism. The fear of legalism can drive us to the opposite extreme so that we rob ourselves of the benefits of a regular pattern of walking with God. Benefits. 
of being protected by the spiritual armor of grace through prayer. That's the second one. And of praying for the deliverance of many others through much prayer. Paul warns us to resist this kind of thing. By the way, that too is deceit from the enemy, that kind of thinking. You, you, you learn about legalism a little bit in the Bible, and then you apply it incorrectly. I, I don't mean you, <laughs> but some of these here. Here's what Paul said. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That's not legalism. That's discipline. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Why do we do this? Because we get, a, we get rewarded for this. That's one of the reasons he gives. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The danger of confusing legalism with spirit-empowered discipline is that we lose the very God-appointed means that are crucial to grow, uh, to receive spirit, uh, to grow spiritually, to receive spiritual protection as we've been taught, to deliver others, and to have intimacy with Christ. Amen. You see what the devil's been doing? He deceives us into thinking that that's legalism. It's not. Paul says it's discipline. Legalism stems from putting confidence in our own efforts and abilities, and it produces pride and self-righteousness. But discipline recognizes that we're already fully accepted by God through faith, but that we need to depend on the Spirit's power and exert effort to grow in holiness, which results in more joy and freedom. To protect ourselves against the devil's schemes, to deliver others from the devil's grasp through prayer, and to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward. If you want to excel in sports, in music, in business, in a profession, in your career, in your marriage, in your family, in ministry, you have to be disciplined. We don't call that legalism. We call that discipline. We call successful people self-disciplined. To be successful, you don't just do things when you feel like doing them. A well-disciplined army wins the war, and a well-disciplined army of Christian soldiers, and that's what Paul called it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, will be able to withstand the withering attacks of the enemy and deliver many from the jaws of our mortal enemy, the devil. Oh, Lord. I pray that you would challenge each of us, that you would challenge our church and the church across the country, the Church of Canada, to be much about this business of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email 
prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.